In just a few weeks, the annual budget dance, this time for 2023, will start. In fact, you can already hear the music. People who follow these things closely predict the White House will request only a very small increase for the Defense Department, knowing Congress will plus it up anyway. For the latest detail, we turn to Bloomberg government reporter Roxana Tiron. Roxana, good to have you back. Good to be with you. So the analysis you have looked at says that the administration's request for DOD is going to be up only a tiny bit. That is correct. The budget analysts who do this for a living have sort of made their prognosis. And honestly, it's quite a wide range. It would range somewhere between $735 billion to $765 billion. We have to take into account the fact that you have the defense budget, but the national security budget that President Biden is going to put out also includes nuclear programs at the Department of Energy. So overall, I think you'd be looking at somewhere around 770 billion, you know, close to 800 billion ultimately. But they have to take into account the inflation numbers because they did not budget for that last year. And now we know that the passbacks have been sent to the various components and to the Pentagon. Correct. But we don't know exactly what they said. What we know so far is that they have decided to basically take into account 4% for inflation instead of the 2.6% that they were planning on uh, last year when they did sort of their forecast for future years. So we do know that. And we do know that the Office of Management and Budget has sent back, you know, the Defense Department's budget proposal with the top numbers. And now each of the military services is uh, working from those numbers Obviously, they're not disclosed yet, but all we know is that the numbers are likely to increase because they're accounting for a higher inflation number. So that range up to 755, how does that compare with what Congress actually will have appropriated for 2022 that's coming out presumably after the CR in a couple of weeks? Yes. So the highest range that the analysts were predicting, I think, uh, was 765. And that actually, you know, Congress is still working on a defense appropriations bill, a defense spending bill for this fiscal year, which is fiscal 22, started October 1st. Our understanding from our reporting is that defense will get about $5 billion more than has been authorized. So the Pentagon has been authorized at $740 billion, just the Pentagon alone. We're not counting here the DOE number. And because Republicans in Congress, particularly in the Senate, have pushed for a much higher number for defense and for domestic spending to come down, what we're hearing is that potentially the spending number that will be approved for the Pentagon would be around $745 billion. All right. So they're basing it on the authorization, but not the appropriation. I mean, there's always a delta there because, as your article points out, there's almost an assumption that Congress will put in more than the administration wants. That's part of that deal of the parity, or so to speak, between defense and non-defense spending. Yes. And that's exactly what the defense authorizing committees have done. The Senate and House Armed Services Committee, basically, they were in unison by, you know, they increased the defense budget authorization by $25 billion already. So President Biden has signed that into law. So he signed the authorization for $740 billion, so to speak. And now they have to get the spending money. It's just an authorization. So they have to get the spending money. So they would potentially get more money than the defense authorization bill. So they will get about $745 billion, if not more, from Congress, which means they're going to have about six months to spend that at that rate. 
We're speaking with Roxana Tiron. She's a reporter with Bloomberg Government. And looking at the analytics outputs that you reported on, those people build numbers based on something. So besides the top-line number, do we know what the priorities are that are expressed in that budget for the Biden administration? Because if you've got 4% inflation, well, that could be eaten up by health care costs and salaries for troops, and that's it. As you already know, the personal costs are the highest. And so that's exactly right. You will have to account for those expenses. We're looking at a 4.5% pay raise that is already planned for. So that's going to eat up a lot of the funds as well. And then you have the whole focus that has to leave room for development in hypersonic weapons, AI, cyber, and obviously for uh, some of the unplanned operations that are you know, most likely to come up. And that energy department piece, too, that's kind of crucial because that's where this ongoing back and forth about what, how much and how far to modernize the elements of the nuclear arsenal. And that's been a back and forth debate for years. And I think that's going to stay at a, at a steady pace, despite the disagreements between uh, Republicans and Democrats on nuclear weapons and how much we need to fund. That has been a topic where Republicans tend to win on just making sure that we have a modernized uh, nuclear arsenal. However, it is a common understanding in Congress that our nuclear arsenal needs to be modernized. Yes, because Russia has modernized its as far as we can tell, and China is modern kind of to begin with relative to ours. Yes, correct. Anything else we can discern from these documents and these analyses with respect to strategy? Well, the Biden administration still has to release their national defense strategy, which they haven't done. And normally that would inform some of the budget as well. So we're still waiting to see that. I mean, we're clearly aware that there's been a pivot, so to speak, to the uh, Pacific region. So China concerns are at the forefront. But as you can see now, don't just have the Pacific region. Now our focus has been on Eastern Europe as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Biden administration is going to spell out its national security priorities and and how it wants to sort of show them to the world. And even though they're not saying the contractors do have some influence over these budgets because the acquisition lines get influenced, I think, to some degree by contractors, if not directly, then through the Congress members in which their districts operate. So that we don't really know yet, how many more C this, X that, or N the other. We don't, but what we know is that every year Congress does change that budget, particularly in defense, and includes their own priorities, which is fair, is what their job is, to decide what should be funded and what shouldn't. However, you already have a Pentagon budget that is eaten up by the F-35. You have some some major, major programs that need to be successful. And I think you're going to see a lot of oversight, if not necessarily more money towards those programs, but a lot of oversight. You have the F-35, you have the, the Ford carriers, you have, like I said before, the development for hypersonic weapons, AI, all of that, you know, needs a careful eye from Congress. Well, every year I ask them for a C-17 that says federal drive on the side, but they haven't granted me that yet, so I'll have to fly commercial. You might have to hire a good lobbyist. All right. Roxana Tiron is a reporter with Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 
I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.